Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we're celebrating Mother's Day. We're going to talk to Michelle Zahner. She plays music as Japanese Breakfast, but she also wrote this really amazing memoir called Crying in H Mart. It's about food and her late mother and the way the two of them connected around the idea of food. We're also going to talk to Chiaria Allegria Pudis. She co-wrote In the Heights, the musical, and she's going to tell us about how the Puerto Rican community in Philadelphia and her mother's sense of language really helped shape her Pulitzer Prize winning career. Then we're going to hear some music from Morea Massa, who performs a beautifully moving song called Honey as a tribute to her mom's struggles with mental illness. We've got a fun and fascinating Mother's Day episode of the show coming your way, starting right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. How's it going, Luke? My brother from another mother. (laughs) That's right. Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? I'm a mama. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to tell you about a place where Livewire is on the radio. You try to guess where I'm talking about. Don Celso Baca built and named this city after both his mother, Rosa, and St. Rosa of Lima. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm going to I'm going to throw a little like a freelance uh, kind of hint in here. Mm-hmm. There's two well-known cities in America with this name. This is the one that's on Route 66. Uh Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Wow. <laughs> I didn't have to tell you that it's the scuba diving capital of the Southwest. What? Because there's an artesian well called the Blue Hole that you can apparently <laughs> scuba dive in in, you're exactly right, Elena, Santa Rosa, New Mexico, where we are on the radio on K-A-N-R. Shout out to everyone listening down there in New Mexico. Oh, wow. That scuba diving thing would have thrown me off, I think. Oh, well, maybe it's better then that <laughs> yeah. we didn't get to that hint. All right. Uh, Ready to do our little radio show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, musician and writer Michelle Zahner. One major point of contention between my mom and I was that I had this creative energy and I had this real desire to become a rock musician. And playwright Chiara Alegria-Hudes. I was confused when my mom was 
telling me about times she had spoken to spirits. And then I went to get dad's take on this and he was like, God don't exist, kid. With music from Maria Massa. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everyone. Tuning in all across the country. Special shout out to all the moms listening this week as we are celebrating Mother's Day this episode. We're going to be hearing from the Livewire listeners a little bit later about important lessons that their mothers taught them over the years. That was the the listener question for this week. Uh, we've got some great interviews as well that we're going to get to. Remember, uh, speaking of great interviews, Elena, how, uh, I don't know, was it like a couple of Mother's Days ago we had our actual moms on the show? Oh, yeah. M- Mother's Day 2020. <laughs> Karen I, and Susie. <laughs> honestly, I, I worry about bringing my mom on the radio because she is radio gold. <laughs> like, I kind of work pretty hard at this and I try to think of a few entertaining things to say and do my research and get ready. And all of that pales in comparison to my mom just talking off the top of her head anytime you put a microphone or telephone anywhere near her. She's just got that raw presence. That, she yeah. does. She's just a natural athlete when it comes to, to radio broadcast. <laughs> um, we do need to get to some of these uh, interviews that we've got dialed up for the show this week, which means we're not going to do our typical best news segment at the top of the program. But if you would like to catch some of the best news that happened this week. We have a podcast over there in the Livewire podcast feed that you can listen to. So uh, head on over there for that. In the meantime, let's welcome our first guest over to the show. She's probably best known for her music, uh, which she performs as Japanese Breakfast, but she also knows a lot about food and, unfortunately, a lot about grief, as she writes about in her amazing memoir, Crying in H Mart which uh, talks about her mother's passing and also the connection that they made over food. Uh, Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Michelle Zahner, recorded in April of last year. Michelle Zahner, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, This book is incredible. We're also really big fans of your music. I want to start at the beginning, though, of this memoir. What is H Mart and why do you love it so much? Uh, H-Mart is a grocery chain now. Um, It's a Korean grocery chain. And I found myself um, going there a lot after my mom, who is Korean, passed away. And um, it was a real, like, key to my grieving process, I guess. You know, I lived uh, as a caretaker for six months in Eugene during my mom's illness. And for a long time, I could only really remember these really traumatic experiences of like watching her health deteriorate and going to H Mart for the first time, it was like uncovering a lot of that sort of trauma. And I would see a can of like sweet beans. And I would have this memory of my childhood of when my mom and I would eat like this Korean snow cone together with red bean and uh, different types of fruit. And then I would see like bungtiki, um, which are like these styrofoam type of like corn. They're like rice cakes kind of. Uh, and I ate them a lot as a kid. And so it like helped me excavate a lot of like really beautiful memories that I had of my mom before she was sick and and I became just um so comforted by going there and and going there once once a week I still go there pretty much (laughs) once a week what was your approach or, or or maybe when in the process did you know that food was going to be such an important part of the memoir 
From the beginning, really. Um, the first essay I wrote was largely about Mangchi, who is this Korean YouTube vlogger who has really kind of demystified the Korean cooking process to a lot of English speakers. Um, she's very famous. She has like five million uh, YouTube wow. subscribers, <laughs> and she's such a she's been so generous uh, with her her time and, and knowledge. And um, yeah, you know, I just thought it was a really sweet story because after my mom passed away, I just was naturally drawn. Um, to learning how to cook Korean food for a variety of reasons that are in the book, uh, in part because I, I felt like my culture needed protecting in a way that I had always felt like innately Korean because my mom was Korean, and then when she passed away, it felt like this thing I had to really work to preserve. Mm. Um, and yeah, there's a variety of things that happen in the book, but but I found myself um, turning to this woman and cooking with this woman, and I just thought it was a really sweet story that like it was kind of like a Korean Julie and Julia, where like this woman <laughs> I had like never met had come to mean so much to me and had anchored me through through this really difficult time in my life. Um, and, you know, that sort of was the step towards, like, why I even ended up in H Mart, you know, once a week to begin with was because in order to make these recipes, I had to go get the ingredients. And then I found myself in this grocery store that brought back so many wonderful memories that I had kind of forgotten about. Um, and so I always knew that that was going to be the sort of major thematic vehicle in this book. Do you find writing something like this, a memoir, and writing your music, do they kind of come from the same place in your brain and your heart, or, or is, are they really different kind of creative experiences? They're similar in the way that I feel like, you know, you're taking from the same pool of memory and sort of taking a magnifying glass to the ordinary and, and discovering meaning and depth and what's extraordinary about that moment. I think that it's basically leaning into your sensitivities as a person for both of those things. Um, writing a book felt a lot longer and, and harder, and there are a lot more words, and, and that was the main difference, I think. Um, you grew up mostly in Oregon, and um, your, your mom is originally was from Korea. Your dad is uh, a white guy from the U.S. What was that <laughs> like, what was that like uh, generally speaking, in your childhood to kind of grow up in that environment? Um, it was delightful in some ways. I think that as a as a child, I really felt like I had the best of both worlds. It was something that made me feel very special. Um, obviously, like Eugene is not rich with too much diversity in its population. So when I became a teenager, I, I started to, I guess, just feel a little bit uncomfortable being mixed race. Um, you know, obviously, like Eugene is like a pretty like outward facing liberal town. Um, so I wouldn't say that I encountered like a tremendous amount of you know, aggressive racism. Uh, but, you know, when you're a teenager, any small difference in your person and character, like, feels, you know, just like a scab, like <laughs> anything that marks you as different. And so I think in my adolescence, I sort of shirked that part of my identity for a long time. And then it wasn't until my mom got sick that I found myself sort of chasing after something I had pushed away mm. uh, in, in a sense. Little things really like, you know, my mom's name was Chung Mi and my middle name was Chung Mi. And when I was younger, I used to pretend I didn't have a middle name because mm. Michelle Zahner sounds so white passing. And I just did. I just never wanted anyone to assume anything about me because I was Asian. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like this neutral body that could just like prove itself on entry or something like that. And, you know, I was embarrassed that people would mispronounce it like chow mein. So I, I just would do little things like that to kind of like distance myself from that part of myself, I think. I, I felt reading this book like I really got a 
interesting view into your mom's personality. And, and one of the ways that it really comes out is in like her food preferences. Would you mind reading uh, a little bit where you talk about, you know, the stuff that your mom uh, liked to eat and, and the way that she would order her food wherever she might have been? Uh, yeah. What I never seem to forget is what my mother ate. She was a woman of many usuals, half a patty melt on rye with a side of steak fries to share at the Terrace Cafe after a day of shopping, an unsweetened iced tea with half a packet of Splenda, which she would insist she never use on anything else. Minestrone she'd order steamy hot, not steaming hot, with extra broth from the Olive Garden. On special occasions, half a dozen oysters on the half shell with champagne mignonette and steamy hot French onion soup from Jake's in Portland. She was maybe the only person in the world who'd request steamy hot fries from a McDonald's drive-thru in earnest. Jampong, spicy seafood noodle soup with extra vegetables from Cafe Seoul, which she always called Seoul Cafe, transposing the syntax of her native tongue. She loved roasted chestnuts in the winter, though they gave her horrible gas. She liked salted peanuts with light beer. She drank two glasses of Chardonnay almost every day, but would get sick if she had a third. She ate spicy pickled peppers with pizza. At Mexican restaurants, she ordered finely chopped jalapenos on the side. She ordered dressings on the side. She hated cilantro, avocados, and bell peppers. She was allergic to celery. She rarely ate sweets, with the exception of the occasional pint of strawberry Haagen-Dazs, a bag of tangerine jelly beans, one or two seized chocolate truffles around Christmas time, and a blueberry cheesecake on her birthday. She rarely snacked or took breakfast. She had a salty hand. That was Michelle Zahner reading from her memoir, Crying in H Mart. This right here is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Mother's Day this week on the show. We've got to take a real quick break, but don't go anywhere because we'll have much more with Michelle coming back in a minute. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. 
here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Mother's Day on the show this week and listening back to an interview from last year with Michelle Zahner, the musician who performs as Japanese Breakfast. We were talking to her about her book, Crying in H Mart. Take a listen to this. You know, one of the things you also mentioned about your mom was that she did a lot of kooky things, like trying to make you grow taller or like pinch your <laughs> nose when you were a kid and be, I think what we might describe in this day and age as like pretty critical about certain things. When did you start to reconcile this obvious deep love uh, between the two of you with also this kind of, you know, uh, some of the things that, that she was doing to try to make you the best version of yourself? I think you're right. I mean, I think a lot of mothers and daughters have this really complicated relationship. One thing I've quoted a lot, and I'm not entirely sure what episode is it, it it's from, but um, in The Sopranos, uh, Tony says something to Carmelo where he says, like, you know, her and Meadow, their daughter, are fighting. And he says, oh, mothers and their daughters, you know, don't worry, Carm, she'll return to you. I think in a lot of ways that's mm-hmm. some, something that a lot of, um, you know, teenage girls and their moms go through. And, you know, my mom... Uh, one major point of contention between my mom and I was that I had this creative energy and I had this real desire to become, I wanted to become a rock musician. And, you know, as an immigrant parent uh, who had, you know, major cultural differences from me, that was something that my mom felt was really her duty to protect me from. It was something that she felt I did not understand the real financial risk of and also the amount of rejection and I was I was bound to face uh, with that sort of lifestyle so my mom really felt like it was her duty to protect me from that and and of course I just hated her for it because I had discovered this passion that I had and uh, this thing that I loved and and I felt like she was really in the way of it and it wasn't until I went to college and sort of entered my early 20s that you know when we had a really meaningful phone call where she said to me I, I realized I just I just never met someone like you. Mm. And that was like such an intense moment for me because it's not something that you really uh, expect to hear from your parent who's supposed to know you best. And I think that that was sort of her way of saying like, I think I get it now. You mm-hmm, know, this mm-hmm. weird thing I thought you would grow out of is, is not maybe a weird thing that you're going to grow out of. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe her realizing too that you're your own person and mm-hmm. not just like an extension of her and, and her kind of way of being in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was also a real cultural difference. Like that wasn't something that she um, knew how to deal with, you know, and it felt really like something that she that Mm. she should protect me from. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Michelle Zahner about her new memoir, Crying in H Mart. She also plays music as Japanese Breakfast. Um, It's interesting to note, I guess, that. The first album you released while playing as Japanese Breakfast um, was after your mom passed away. And and I know you've described that album as being very much related to your mom's passing. What do you think she would have made of, of, of the fact that that's the album that really puts you on the map for a lot of people musically? I have no idea. I mean, I think that she would be thrilled, you know? I mean, I, I my mom, unfortunately, never got to see me experience any sort of success as an artist. And, you know, there have been so many uh, times mentally that I've been like, I told you so. Uh, but, um, you know, it's a really strange serendipitous thing my life became very charmed after she passed away you know and and it feel i'm not a, a religious person or, or a particularly spiritual person but it does feel like my mom has looked out for me in, in a way because i've i've only had great luck uh and success as an artist since she passed away and and made this very like personal art about that experience and so yeah i mean i, I i'm sure she would be 
she would be thrilled. I recently did like a, a photo shoot for Harper's Bazaar where they put me in a Chanel suit <gasps> and my mom like mm. uh, my mom like most Korean women was like obsessed with Chanel and uh, <laughs> they were like yeah just tilt a little bit show us your tattoos like we like the juxtaposition of the, the luxury with like you know something harder. And I was like, God, if my mom could only hear <laughs> you say that. Because like, my mom hated my tattoos and, and would have just been so delighted to um, see me in, like that, you know. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> How has it been for you, Michelle, doing press for this book and, and just kind of, I mean, you've written about it and you've made albums about it and you've thought about it a lot. And yet talking about your mom to people you don't really know must be a different way of kind of re-experiencing her. How's it been for you? Um, you know, I've, I'm pretty used to talking about this experience. I think that I'm a natural, I'm the type of artist that is a bit of an open book. And I, I feel like that's, uh, the sort of strength in my work is that I, I, I feel pretty capable of, of putting it all out there and being really vulnerable. So I'm pretty used to talking about it. I mean, it is, some of the sections in the book are, are certainly very, uh, difficult to read still. And, uh, you know, but, but other than that, talking about it with people is it's, it's kind of a delight sometimes, you know, uh, I feel like I've really captured her character and spirit in some ways. And it's a, the whole book is a real love letter to, you know, our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that you feel like you understand about grief and loss now, as we interview you that you wouldn't have known, you know, before your mom got sick? Yeah, actually, um, there's a line in, in, you know, there's a lot of sort of borrowed lines from Japanese breakfast songs that made their way into Crying in H Mart that sort of the real heads will recognize um, <laughs> as the Easter eggs. But Only the real uh, heads know. Only the real heads know. There's a new song uh, that just came out called called Posing in Bondage that uh, I released. And uh, there's a line in that song that says... Um, when the world divides into two people, those who have felt pain and those who have yet to. And, and that line also makes an appearance in the book and is a little bit more thought out. But, um, you know, one thing that grief really opened up to me is I feel like other people who've experienced loss are more readily um, able to connect with you, uh, no, knowing that you've endured the same kind of feeling. And one of the heartbreaking parts of my story is that I felt like things were just starting to get really great again between my mother and I. And I had this very limited few years where, you know, we had sort of like drifted apart in my adolescence and then come back together and start to really appreciate each other as like peers, as adults and Mm -hmm. and be able to confide in each other. And I'm very sad that I didn't get to have longer with with my mother in that way. Mm. Um, A more, uh, I guess, sort of prosaic question. If somebody finds themselves in an H Mart... What is the one thing they have to make sure that they taste or make sure they pick up from like an ingredient section? And then this is a, a, maybe a, a, an impossible question to answer because there's like 8 billion things there. But like what's what's something people should not miss if they find themselves at an H Mart, in your opinion? Um, I mean, I guess like uh, any good Korean, I'd have to say kimchi, you mm. know, I mean, uh, they have a great selection <laughs> of kimchi <laughs> there, but, uh, you know, something like less, uh, basic, I guess is, um, I'm a big fan of, uh, it's not even Korean, but, uh, kewpie mayonnaise. I highly recommend, uh, everyone invest in, in a tube of kewpie mayonnaise. It's okay. a Japanese mayonnaise and, um, it tastes so much better than, than regular mayonnaise. <laughs> What do you attribute that to? Is it is it just? I think it has MSG in it. Yeah. <laughs> so Kewpie mayonnaise, um, and 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 obviously some kimchi because uh, it sounds like they have some some really good stuff there. 
Well, uh, we hope to see you in Portland when that sort of stuff is happening. Maybe we'll see you uh, at Jake's eating a <laughs> ste- steamy hot bowl of <laughs> French onion soup. Definitely. Uh, Michelle Zahner, uh, her new memoir is Crying in H Mart, and also you can hear her music that she plays as Japanese Breakfast. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the Livewire House Party. Thank you so much for having me. That was Michelle Zahner, recorded last year. Her amazing book, Crying in H Mart, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Zachary Simons of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Greg Bates of Portland, Oregon. Zachary and Greg are part of the Livewire member community. They are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which we're very thankful for because it is legitimately, and I'm not being (laughs) extra here, as the young people say, It is legitimately how we were able to keep doing the show week in, week out. So thank you very much, Zachary and Greg, for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week on the show, we like to ask listeners a question. Because we're celebrating Mother's Day this week, we asked, what's the most important thing your mother ever taught you Elena has been collecting up some of those responses. Oh, what are you seeing? Well, I mean, I think every child wants their mother to give them this piece of advice. Uh, <laughs> it comes from Angela, whose mother said, don't have children, stick with pets. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it's rare, though, because, you know, most moms, the kind of trope is uh, grandma, when are you going to make me a grandma kind of questions. Uh-huh. But uh, Angela's mom was like, when are you going to make me a grandmother of a dog, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend. And her mom started wearing a world's best grandma t-shirt. And my friend pointed out to her mom that she didn't have any kids. (laughs) And her mom was like, yeah, I'm just letting you know. Just prepping. Just like it's like the manifesting. (laughs) That's right. Manifesting via t-shirt. Wow, that's some real real honesty from that mother. But you you sort of got to respect that. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, what's another piece of advice that someone got from their mom that stuck with them? How about this one from Jennifer? The advice Jennifer received, a woman always knows the right time to leave. (laughs) I feel like that's like an etiquette thing, like a party thing, which is, you know, don't Mm -hmm. overstay your welcome. Mm -hmm. Also, if you're the last person to leave, you have to help clean up. So maybe that's also part of the advice. I hope that it doesn't extend to like, you know, leaving a relationship or something. Are you a lingerer at things? I have a hard time getting out the door. I'm one of those people who says mm-hmm. that I'm going to leave and mm-hmm. then 45 minutes later, I'm still there. I, depending on if I've had a couple drinks or not, have become famous among my friend group for just as it's known, you know, the the Irish goodbye mm-hmm. or the French exit. I feel like every nationality mm-hmm. <laughs> has some version of this where they're just like, what happened to Luke? He was just here. <laughs> Which actually I feel like is kind of nice because look, then you don't have to like take up everybody's time saying goodbye and kind of drag it all out. Like I'm fine. I just want people to know if you're ever at a get together that I have thrown and you're ready to go home, I will not be offended if you just kind of subtly and quietly make your way out into the night. That's fine with me. Oh, that reminds me of our executive producer, Laura Hatton's little baby just had her third birthday. Mm, and Josie. I believe it was Josie's first first public party and a certain percentage of the way in, she just told everyone that she'd like them to go home. (laughs) (laughs) So she wants to leave her own party. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've, I've had that experience before. Yeah. All right. One more uh, piece of sage advice that somebody got from their mom. Oh, I like this one from Herman. It's uh, <laughs> dessert is the most important meal of the day. <laughs> I have been really leaning into my dessert tendencies oh, yeah? of late. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it is about. I made it through a lot of the pandemic kind of eschewing a lot of sweets around the house, but something, I don't know, I just got really into like, I've got cookies and Mm. little like donuts and things. And it's like my little ritual now, like at night I get done uh, watching my Netflix and then I go and I, I have to only have one light on in my place. I don't know why that's part of it. I have this one little corner light and then I sit and I have my little cookie and my milk and it's like very nice end to my day. That's very cute. I imagine you in like railroad track matching pajamas when you're doing uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. That's exactly. I have a candle <laughs> and a little like candlestick and a, one of those sleeping Stocking hats caps. on. <laughs> yeah, it's real old school the way that I do it. I have a friend named Inara who uh, comes from a Latvian family and she says that Latvian women always say, we eat cake for breakfast because life is hard. <laughs> I think that's a decent um, philosophy yeah. to life. I mean, it's a good excuse to eat cake for breakfast, so. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks to everyone who sent in a response to our listener question. Uh, you're listening to Livewire here from PRX. We are talking about Mother's Day this week on the show. And our next guest has a really incredible resume and also a really incredible lived experience to go with that resume. Kiara Alegria Hudes co-wrote the Broadway musical In the Heights, along with Lin-Manuel Miranda, NBD. Uh, And she won a Pulitzer Prize for her play, Water by the Spoonful. Now she is the author of an incredible new memoir, My Broken Language, about growing up with her large Puerto Rican family in Philadelphia and how her mother's use of the English language really helped inspire her own writing career. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Kiara Alegria Hudes recorded last year. And just a heads up before we get into it, in reading from her book, Kiara uses a racial term that could be offensive to some people. Kiara, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Woo woo. Um, this book starts with you as a kid, and you're actually leaving Philadelphia to go live on a farm with your parents. And I was all sort of like anticipating that it was going to be a story about how much you hated living on the farm because <laughs> it was like so different than like Philadelphia. And actually it sounds like you kind of liked it out there. Like you 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 were pretty at home in nature and the woods. I loved it. I mean, it's funny because I have very consciously thought about the book as my experiencing straddling and bridging multiple and often conflicting realities, like speaking English and Spanish at home, um, having my parents' interfaith relationship. But I never thought of it also as like being a city kid and a country kid, that both of those things are are very true in my heart. Then your parents eventually end up splitting up. And then you go, you leave the farm and then you go back to Philadelphia, where you're mostly surrounded by your mom's side of the family. Uh, And it's a big part of this book, I think, is you trying to sort of reconcile your identity a little bit as a person who has Puerto Rican heritage and also Jewish Mm -hmm. heritage. When did that start to be something in your mind that you recognized you had to kind of figure out for yourself? Everything was pretty seamless until my parents separated. And then once they lived in different, you know, my mom is a brown Boricua woman. My dad is a white Jewish man. And their pairing seemed perfectly natural to me because it was my reality until they separated. And then all of a sudden they lived in very different and contrasting 
segregated neighborhoods, and these two components of my identity were really infrastructurally separated in my life. And so that's when I became conscious of, you know, there's a problem here. I don't kind of fully align with myself. Right. You write that in the book. I think you, you'd say that, you know, speaking English as your first language when your mom's side of the family, a lot of them spoke Spanish as kind of their first language. I think you write my words and my world did not align, which you said perhaps made me a lost yes. soul. Yes. And I, I think that as I became a teenager and I really discovered a love and passion for literature, my skills with the English language only got better and better. And the better I got at it, the more conscious I became that English really lacked the vocabulary to describe certain parts of myself, to describe my reality and some of my truths. And so I had this language problem, what, what to do, you know, how, what language do I use to be most me? Um, and by the end of the book, I discover that when I become a writer. I was wondering if you might be able to read a little bit from from the new memoir, um, in, in particular, uh, the, the chapter called Mom's Accent. Okay, so at this point, I'm in high school when I'm writing this. My non-Latino friends always had a comment when mom answered. After she handed me the phone, they'd be like, her accent is decent. I don't hear it, I'd say. They'd be like, stop playing. Yes, you do. Old friends found comfort in her vowel-rich hello. New friends just got confused. If mom answered, they'd be like, yo, are you a jungle fever, baby? I thought you was white, but your mom sounds pure Spanish Harlem. Mom's cadences were invisible to me, with a few exceptions. When mom said obnoxious, it rhymed with precocious. Precocious? Obnoxious. When mom said Home Depot, it rhymed with teapot. Teapot, Home Depot. When mom said realm, it rhymed with stay calm. Stay calm, realm. I corrected her in the car. I corrected her in the living room. No cash register or playground was too public to fix her blunder. Sometimes it was embarrassment, which I pretended was charity. Others, it was the know-it-all cockiness of youth. And still others, to tease a mystical giantess. Her numinous ass needed reminders that I was down here in the plebeian realm. She never once said, you child, stop colonizing my ass. But she never changed her pronunciation either. We went to Home Depot a lot, so she was definitely asserting her right of mispronunciation. I wonder what it's like to grow up in Arecibo, Puerto Rico, learning English in first grade, starting with songs like Pollito Chicken, to bring your papi his coffee on the farm, your papi who doesn't speak a lick of English, made by your mommy who speaks even less, to leave Arecibo at 11, come to Los Bronx, as autumn breezes take hold, to have girl gangs mocking your spick accent and hurling rocks at your head, to wait until the janitor is done mopping and the floors are dry and he turns off the lights and is like, out kid, I'm locking up. And still the gang is there with the rocks. To have a Philly guidance counselor deny you a college conversation because I mean, let's be real. And anyway, there was no money for college and anyway, your parents didn't make it past second grade, so simmer down to advocate for immigrant moms who can't afford serial or prenatal care, to be honored by the National Organization of Women for getting those immigrant moms serial and prenatal care, 
to be hired by State Senator Hardy Williams and while drafting his legislation to write in backdoor deals so your Boricua brethren aren't left with crumbs, to do all that off a high school education and a hunger for books, and then to have your love child from a white hippie correct your pronunciation when she's six years old, then when she's nine, then when she's 17 and she know better as if the words I write are my language and not hers. The woman who taught me English. The woman who gifted it to me and now I drink $10 Prosecco and pay my Riverview mortgage and take vacations off the English language she nursery rhymed in my ear before I had words at all. I eat my words. I eat my corrections como una come mierda. Mom, if you ever read this book and make it this far without disowning me, I ask you one favor. Break this English language today and tomorrow and the day after and bestow it new life with each breaking. Endow your fullness upon this cracked colonial tongue. You language genius. This is your English. You earned it. I am only a guest here. Kiara Alegria Hudes reading from her book, My Broken Language. Um, so that was kind of talking about your, your mother's relationship with English. Uh, but uh, beyond that, your mom also had a relationship with what is sometimes known as Santeria. Yes. But I guess it's it's a Lukumi. Is that the specific version of, of a spiritual practice that your mother follows? Well, there's a few names for it. Um, so it was popularly known in my adolescence as Santeria. There were a bunch of horror flicks that referred to it and kind of degraded the philosophy and the faith. But um, so, I, so I use that word kind of cautiously. Lukumi is another word for this path. Ifa is another word for this path for the, um, the Yoruban-based Afro-Caribbean faith. What was that like for you uh, to to be a kid who, whose mom was a was a practitioner of this? I mean, there's a story from the book where you have a turtle living in your bathtub. I thought that again. I never knew where this book was going to go. <laughs> I thought this was going to be the story of you and the turtle falling in love, and that's not how it ends it for the turtle. Like the story of my life, never knowing which way it's going to go. Um, I. My mother has a spiritual gift, which I never totally understood because I don't share that gift. My gifts are different. Um, so I have seen her do lots of natural healing. She was a gifted herbalist. And as her studies in this particular path to become a priest um, deepened and intensified, um, I saw more and more. I saw, I saw her be possessed. Um, experienced spirit possession. And I also witnessed animal sacrifices, which were part of the practice. And as a child, mm -hmm. it was pretty scary and confusing, even though some of the nights I witnessed these things, I had had a cheesesteak for lunch, which apparently was not upsetting <laughs> to me at all. Um, you know, right. so, and I understood these contradictions a little bit. These were ceremonial practices um, that were misunderstood by myself included to be blessings. And then after these practices, uh, you know, when the turtle I had befriended or the chicken who was in the backyard or the goat who was in the basement, uh, after they were sacrificed, they were cooked. 
And we ate them as meals, mm -hmm. you know, but somehow the honesty of that act was still mm. terrifying to me. Life and death is, is confusing and terrifying to us all. And it took study and perspective to understand and appreciate, okay, well, yeah, those deaths scared me, but they also nurtured me. I ate that goat stew. It was delicious, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. You, you talk in the book about how, because your, your father, your, your biological father, was a, you know, Asimov reader and a, a person who was, you know, not given to sort of religious thought. Your dad doesn't come off great all the time in this book. Uh, were you concerned about putting that out there? I mean, it, this is now out for the whole world to read. Um, I adore my dad. And, you know, we have had a long history of ups and downs, and we have been honest with each other about this. My intention was not to hurt him, but it was to look at, you know, my cultural experience being from a mixed house. Um, but he also bought me my first typewriter. He made me my first writing desk mm -hmm. that I wrote this book on. And it's a beautiful, he's yes. an artisan, he's a woodworker, and it's a beautiful desk. And so I think he has given me a great act of generosity saying, it's okay, you can write your life. Uh, you know, he's strong enough to take it. So yeah, I was confused when my mom was um, telling me about times she had spoken to spirits. And then I went to get dad's take on this. And he was like, God don't exist, kid. You know, I'm like, okay, so one of my parents is right and one of them is wrong. Which one is it? You know, um, I, I, I had to discover that answer on my own. I couldn't help but thinking about like, you have another language, which is the language of playwriting, right? <laughs> I, I love Water by the Spoonful. And that must have been some kind of re-education to start to have to work with narrative to make a book, right? Rather than using the parameters of playwriting. Did you have like a, a strategy or a... My strategy as a writer has always been eavesdropping. So I think that this was born when the little kid left West Philly and moved to the horse farm. Mm -hmm. I would go to the woods by myself and I'd eavesdrop on the frogs. I'd follow my ears to find where the birds were, you know? <laughs> and so my mom would tell me stories I'd ease, and I'd eavesdrop on some of her conversations on the phone with her sisters. And then at a certain point in my writing life, I just start writing down what I'm hearing. I mean, God bless my family members. You know, I, I don't think they were aware <laughs> of this fact, you know, but, um, and then I walk around New York City as an adult. Um, after the book ends, also still eavesdropping, always eavesdropping, always writing mm -hmm. down the way. I love the way humans speak. There is no, no more beautiful instrument to me than the human conversational voice. So for the book, the only difference is I have to eavesdrop on what's going in, going on inside myself. I had always been listening mm -hmm. externally, really in love with the way other people speak. Um, and things that I thought were just kind of vague, emotions in my mind when I really paid attention and listened, I, I discovered a lot more specificity and dynamism than I had um, originally realized. We are talking to Chiara Alegria Hudes uh, about her new memoir, My Broken Language. Um, that's a book that you wrote, but then you also wrote the book <laughs> for In the Heights. For people that don't really know, like, play terminology, what does that actually mean? You wrote okay, the book Okay, this for makes me want to pull my hair out. It is the most confusing thing. It's, like, meant to <laughs> yeah. make people not understand. 
why it's not called the script of a musical, I'll never understand. What it means is it's the <laughs> script of a musical. So it's, it's also the story. So with Lin-Manuel, I wrote the story of In the Heights and the script. And he wrote the music and the lyrics. Did you have a sense when you were working on, I mean, a lot of people now, of course, associate Lin-Manuel with Hamilton, but In the Heights... It was a huge hit, uh, you know, all on its own, and you won a Tony for it. And, I mean, did you have a sense when you guys were creating that that this was something really special that was going to really be well-received? You know, in order to write a piece, in order to write this book, My Broken Language, in order to write In the Heights, I have to know why a piece is special to me. Um, And that's a conversation I have to have with myself every day. Why is this special? Why does this matter? And I have to just proceed with faith that if it's special to me and matters to me, someone else might feel that way too. Um, When I start to think too far outside of my experience and wonder what's a reader gonna think, I get in trouble and I, I just start getting nervous. The writing's not as good. Is that, you think, the key to your writing or at least why why? you're such a talented playwright and writer is because of just having a really authentic voice that you really kind of stick to? <laughs> you know, this notion of the authentic voice is one that I, I find a little bit perplexing because I think, as I discuss in my broken language, I always felt like, how could I have one authentic voice? There's like 50 warring selves mm. and truths that are housed within me. Mm. Um, and so... I think my authentic voice is more symphonic. You know, there's there's a lot of voices in there. And so I'm trying to listen close and not choose one, but actually let those contradictions be present. Your mother um, appears in this book frequently. Um, has she had a chance to read it? It turned out that I had already written about um, some of her experiences in the faith early on. And I was nervous to write about those because they really were shamed and maligned um, in my adolescence. Mm. There was a reason why she kept things quiet because she wanted to Mm. proceed with her faith without, you know, outside critique. I was like, what is she going to think of me writing these things? So I, of course, I showed her an early draft. And this was one of the amazing parts of the process for me. Then she called me and told me more family history, told me more and more. So Mm. I learned so much more family history from her reading early drafts. And, you know, really at the end of the day, I could say, well, mom, it's your fault because you're the one who told me to be a writer. (laughs) Um, And I, I think she was... She felt now is the time, you know, we don't need those old silences anymore. Tell tell the truth. Tell who we are. Well, it's a it's an amazing book. Uh, it's My Broken Language, uh, which is Chiara Alegria Hudes' new memoir. Uh, it is out now. Thank you so much for coming on the Livewire House Party and telling us about it. So fun. Thanks for inviting me to the party. That was Chiara Alegria Hudes. Here on Livewire, we recorded that last year. Her book, My Broken Language, is out now. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Mother's Day this week with some past conversations about the moms that we love. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we'll hear a song from the very soulful Maria Massa. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, 
Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. Right over there is my friend Elena Passarello. We're celebrating Mother's Day this week on the show, uh, and our musical guest wrote a song for her mother as a way to try to process their estranged relationship. Maria Massa is originally from from right here in Portland, Oregon, um, but she's toured all over the world playing music. Uh, she's been on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Uh, she's done an NPR Tiny Desk concert, backing up Alan Stone, another friend of Livewire. Uh, we caught up with Maria back in 2020 when she was down in Los Angeles with her bandmates. They were in a studio and uh, were nice enough to talk to us and play a song. So check this out. It's Maria Massa, recorded back in 2020, right here on Livewire. Maria Massa, welcome to Livewire. Hello. Wait, wait. So, so are we seeing like a, a group of musicians who have been essentially in a musician bubble this whole time? Yeah, these are my friends who live in this this beautiful studio. Wow. Yeah, this is like one of our first times playing music with people, and it feels really good. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we're gonna hear the song "Honey," and I know there's a story behind it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So my mother is a black woman. Um, she was born in Germany and she grew up, she was an adopt, adopted by an all-white family. And she has a lot of mental illness, um, so much so that um, in the last couple years I've had to completely distance myself from her. And that has been so hard, I think, especially uh, as your mom, you want to bathe her in honey, you want to love her um, and you can't. And so I wrote this song um, just in that like push and pull of wanting to love her but not being able to and what that's like. Mm. Um, and I've been raising money uh, through this song. The first $400 that I raised through streaming from this song will go to Radical Rest, which is an incredible Portland organization. Um, and they're doing like once a month, week-long events with BIPOC practitioners, Black, Indigenous, POC, and um, people of color. Um, what we're doing is we're raising money for the BIPOC practitioners to get paid because I think in this time especially, it's so important for BIPOC folks to have therapists and healers that look like them. Mm. And so... That's what this song is about, and that's kind of what this whole release has been about, is just bringing awareness um, to mental health um, and wellness, um, especially in the BIPOC community. Uh, let's, uh, let's take a listen to Maria Massa uh, with the song Honey. Here we go. Don't take much to make me happy. I'm not asking for a light. Just trying to set these boundaries But you keep running after me When all I need is sorry Truth is, I keep questioning the right thing Retracing every word I say I cut the line, but now I feel so lonely Was I too harsh? Was it all him 
Actually, the part if we were doing this live that we would have everybody at home or everybody in the audience sing along so now just if you're at home also if if y'all want to sing with us that'd be great I don't know if we can hear it but <laughs> it'll I, I can see your mouths moving <laughs> here we go who not to bathe you in who not to bathe you Maria Massa right here on Livewire. Her latest EPs, Heart in the Wild, Side A and Side B, are available now. And that's going to do it for Side A and Side B of this episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Michelle Zahner, Chiara Alegria Hudes, and Maria Massa. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our development and marketing director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and our assistant editor is Trey Hester. A. Walker Spring composes our music, and Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Zachary Simons, of Pittsburgh, PA, Elena's Old Stomps, and Greg Bates of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or check out our best news podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening 
and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.